Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Justin Katches. And I'm Devna Shukla. Are you the Devna Shukla? Sure I am. The one who won the Emmy? Yes, this is true. <laughs> and the one who has been my favorite podcast host here at Stern Chats. Well, thank you. This is not about me, but it's such a cool moment in our friendship to be able to co-host together for the very first time. And who are we interviewing today, Devna? We're interviewing someone that I actually haven't gotten to talk to a lot in the hallways of Stern, so I'm really excited. Her name is Leah Winograd. She's a second-year student here at Stern, co-founder and COO of Pepper, a body-positive bra company for small busted women. So Leah is a fellow Block 6 member, shout out to the OG Block 6, and I've had the pleasure to get to know her over the last year and a half. I'm so excited to talk to her about her experience growing up in Columbia, working at McKinsey, starting Pepper, and as an entrepreneur here at Stern. You know what's so cool? Pepper is not just this idea that she's hoping to get off the ground. This past weekend, I went to our friend Jasmine's apartment and saw a Pepper box on her kitchen counter and was so proud in that moment to have Leah here at Stern. We're all rooting for her and so happy that she's a part of this community. And as always, thank you to Pat Vardaro, who avp this episode for us, and everyone working behind the scenes. Devna, you ready to get started? Let's stern up that volume. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Devna Shukla. And I'm Justin Katchis, and with us today in the studio is Leah Winograd, an MBA2 and co-founder and COO of Pepper, the world's first positive body image bra for small busted women. Leah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Leah, we're so excited to hear about you and your story, but in Stern Chat's tradition, can you please give us your 30-second pitch? Sure. So my name is Leah Winograd. I'm an MBA2 at Stern, and I'm the co-founder of Pepper, the first body-positive bra company for small-chested women. Previous to Stern, I went to Tufts undergrad, and then I worked at McKinsey for about two and a half years as a business analyst, and then moved to New York to work at a startup in the technology industry, where I met my co-founder, Jacqueline, and we started working on Pepper as, as a side hustle, and then launched on Kickstarter last April, and then that's about the time when I got accepted to Stern, and here I am trying to grow the company as I do my MBA. That is an incredible story, and I can't wait to talk about it. But we usually like to start these things at the very beginning. So where did you grow up? Where did you call home? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I grew up all over the place, actually. But I would say my home is Columbia. Uh, I was born in Boston, where my dad at the time was doing his Ph.D., so I was born at the Havid ha- Hospital. Havid. <laughs> Havid. Um, and when I was about one year old, uh, we moved to Columbia. And I grew up there when I was uh, 10 years old. We moved to California. And I was there for four years. And then after that, we moved to Chile. And I was there for four years. And then decided to go back to Boston to do kind of like a full circle thing and did my undergrad there. Um, and then I... Uh, lived in Brazil for six months, then Colombia, then back to New York. Wow. That sounds like a winter break excursion for <laughs> uh, that's That's incredible. So uh, do you have any siblings? I do. I'm the middle child. Uh, so I have an older sister who's a doctor, and she lives in Houston. And she Not Houston, for those New Yorkers. Houston. And then my little sister is a web designer, and she lives in Berlin. 
Where do you consider home, though? Do you say do you say Colombia when it's your home? I had to say Colombia, not Colombia. <laughs> one's a university, one's a country. Um, but do you consider that to be home when people ask you? I do consider that to be home. Yeah. I mean, if there's, like, a soccer game, I'm obviously going for the Colombian team, so that's how I know that's home. <laughs> I also count in Spanish, so... Interesting. Other fun fact. Awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your family? We hear your grandfather has a pretty amazing story. Would you mind sharing that? Yeah. Um, so my grandfather, he was a Polish Jew, and he was born in Poland when he was about five years old. He had to escape the Holocaust, it was right before the Holocaust happened, and he left on one of the last boats that was leaving, and a lot of people had managed to make it to the U.S., but by then they were, like, rejecting people, um, and so he ended up in Colombia. He moved there with his older brother and his father. His mom um, died back in Poland. Uh, she got an infection in her leg, and then she didn't want to get it amputated, so then she ended up dying from that infection, so unrelated to the war. And he got to Colombia. He didn't know a word of Spanish. They were a very poor family. Um, his dad didn't take a lot of care uh, for him and his brother. So when he was about 15 or 16 years old, he dropped out of high school and he started working at a factory. At the very bottom, he would fold clothes, cloths all day. And he, he did that so he could pay off for his bro older brother's education. Mm -hmm. And he worked his whole life and was able to ascend to a management position and revamped um, the company that um, he later became the owner of, which was a button factory. And then from there, uh, he, his, his goal was really to give back to, you know, the Jewish community and to just make sure that his, um, his children were living a, a life that he didn't really get to live when he was younger. What um, happened to the factory since then? Yeah, so the factory is still there, and my dad now manages it with my uncle. So every time I fly back to Colombia, I go and I visit. And it was because of this factory and because of the connections we have to the textile industry that we were able to find a manufacturing partner to produce Pepper's Bras. Interesting. It's all full circle then. It's very, yeah, full circle. That's amazing that it's still... My life is a big fat circle. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title of your future memoir. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, and it's still amazing that it's, it's the fact that you're still within, within the family. Um, what about your dad? He seems like a pretty interesting guy. Can you tell us about him? Yeah. Uh, so my dad looks like a Polish Jew, but he's Colombian. He was born in Medellin. Um, and he, so he, when he was growing up, my grandpa was like, you, you guys should all do whatever makes you happy. Like, don't feel like you have to be in a career just to make money. Like, that's what I'm here for. Like, you guys just pursue your dreams and passions. So he uh, was a nerd uh, growing up. Uh, he had a little lab underneath his staircase where he would um, uh, develop photographs from scratch, a little, like, black, how do you call it, like a black... Like a dark room? Like a dark room, yeah. yeah. Um, so he was always kind of a nerd, and then he went into uh, pursuing a science um, master's and a PhD, so he was a biologist, and... He was trying to find a cure to malaria for most of his career. 
And then uh, because we were, so that's why we moved to California initially. He mm -hmm. was working for a new university there doing research. And then he decided to retire from that. And when he moved back to Columbia, he took over the factory. But that's sort of his, his own side hustle because his full-time job now is to make bread. And he takes a Wait, very... What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so bread, here in New York, there are so many options and everything's organic and everything's healthy. But in Colombia, the bread is still like bimbo bread. Do you guys know bimbo, mm -hmm. the brand? Okay. So it's white bread. It's not good for you. Um, so he makes his bread from scratch. It's very natural. And then he does it at scale. He imported a bunch of machinery and like ovens from Europe. And he has this whole operation, and then he sells to a lot of people. So he packages it himself, he brands it himself, and he basically makes minimum wage with this um, hobby of his. It's probably the best bread, though, if you have a PhD it's from so Harvard. Yeah. And you're concocting this like formula together, Like I would buy it. Yeah, my dad has more Instagram followers for his bread company than pepper no way yeah he's like really really good at it and then every time i see him he's like on his excel like figuring out the perfect formula for the bread it's very weird that's so funny that's incredible and it's it's awesome that you have kind of these two in, you know amazing people in your life can you talk about how they've inspired you yeah i mean i think growing up i always had a curiosity for entrepreneurship and now that i'm like living it in real life, it's probably not the same type of entrepreneurship my grandpa went through for mm -hmm. a lot of reasons. But I was always inspired by um, the way in which he was able to support a lot of people around him and help a lot of his own community. And I was always inspired by that. And I, I wanted to learn more about entrepreneurship, um, which is why I probably moved to Brazil after college before joining McKinsey. But, yeah, his story was always an inspiration, and I think that's why I've, um, I've dived into the entrepreneurial path. Mm -hmm. And then my dad has always pushed me towards it as well. Um, so he, Interesting. How yeah. so? Is it just something that he has found so rewarding through his businesses that he thought you should you know, experience that as well? Or is it you saw him you know, as happy as he's been, successful as he's been, and said, I want to do that too? No, he always pushed me to do it. Um, he, every time I was deciding between like a career move, he'd be like, why don't we just both start a business? I'll fund it. You'll, you'll do it. Anything like a shop or anything. Really? Um, so he was always pushing me towards that path. I think once I started doing it, he, he, I don't know if he was entirely serious about me pursuing it. And when I gave him a call and I was like, I'm starting a bra company and I'm quitting my job, he was like, what? Are you sure? Are you sure you want to do that? Did you say bread or bra? <laughs> <laughs> right. You also mentioned um, something that struck me as well, that the factory is near Medellin. Yeah. So I think of Medellin, I think Pablo Escobar mm -hmm. and Entourage, That's two very bad. different things. <laughs> too bad. Yeah. But how would you describe Medellin? Because I know it's the second largest yeah. company, or con second largest city in Colombia, rather. Yes. A hot spot destination where all our friends are going to right. now. But what, what makes uh, Medellin so beautiful? Yeah. I mean, it's a shame that every time you think of the word Medellin, you think of, you know, drugs, narco, mm -hmm. Pablo Escobar, like Netflix is not doing me any favors. Mm -hmm. uh, but... It's beautiful because of the landscape. I mean, Colombia geographically is such a unique place. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, so I mean, geographically, 
the landscape. Everyone there is extremely nice and welcoming. Um, the pace is, is different than New York. Like, you go there and you feel like you can really just enjoy life versus just being trying to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. There's There are a lot of entrepreneurs in Medellin, but it, 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 they don't have this, like, Silicon Valley mentality of trying to make it public at some point. They just want to build something for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so very different, very different uh, cultures. So we want to shift gears and fast forward to Boston and Tufts. Yeah. You were born there. How did you decide to come back to Tufts? How did you find Boston? Yeah, so I was born there, but I don't remember a thing. And when, so when we moved to California after living in Columbia, I really, really loved it there. Um, so I was really sad when we had to leave. And when we left, my older sister got into Brandeis. She also got into Berkeley, but she decided to go to Boston. And for me, it was always important to be near family. So I knew that I wanted to come to the States, but I thought it'd be nice to be close to her. So I only applied to schools in California and in Boston. And uh, that's why I ended up going to Tufts. Were you interested in pursuing anything in particular or you, it was more about location and uh, proximity to your family? Yeah. Um, well, I knew I wanted to learn about business, and I think going to Tufts was probably the wrong decision because they don't have a business degree. <laughs> Should have gone to BC, right? Could have gone to Boston College. <laughs> I hear it's pretty good. Could have water should have. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was just looking at like school, like good schools that I could get, a, like well-ranked schools, yeah. and prioritizing them by um, by location. Mm-hmm. And I did early decision to Tufts, so all of my other applications I had to cancel after I, I got admitted mm-hmm. and I was really really happy that I you know I could go to school there and, and be close to my sister and go to like a, a good school. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the transition back to the states um, and what life was like at that point for you? Yeah that's a good question. Um, so as I mentioned when I was living in California I really loved it there, loved the weather, loved the people. Uh, it was also like the stage of the, my life at that point. I was in middle school like we we're I don't know you have like your first boyfriend, like your friends, like I wanted to, I, I fell in love with that life. And when I moved to Chile, the culture was really different. And being 14, you know, it's tough to kind of adjust to that. So I wanted to transition back into living in, you know, in the US and, and be able to hang out with my friends there. But Boston was completely different from California. And it was so cold. And does it snow up there? A little bit. A little bit, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't have the proper, like, Patagonia gear that I have now, for example. Um, So I really struggled. Like, the weather was really depressing. But it it was good. It was good. I enjoyed it. Does the idea of moving make you excited now moving forward? No. Or, yeah. So never. I don't ever want to move. <laughs> because I moved so much growing up. Like, I was always jealous of my friends who had, like house to go back to and all their stuff was there from the when they were little and they had these friends that they'd had for their whole lives I didn't really have that um so after I went to Boston I was like I'm never moving again I I just want I want to stay in Boston but then when I got the offer for McKinsey which was in Columbia I was like oh man I have to move again and then I ended up going to Brazil and then New York so my desire has always been to just settle down uh, mm-hmm. because I couldn't do that when I was growing up. Definitely. 
When you got that offer, you know, to go to McKinsey, you basically had a job that a lot of people at Stern are working very hard to try to get many years later and many years after you did yourself. Was it something that you always wanted or how did that all come together? I didn't know what McKinsey was until my senior year. Um, I, my sister's husband had worked at McKinsey and he had told me like really good things about consulting and the benefits of going into it. But as I mentioned, Tufts didn't have a strong emphasis on these they didn't bring these consulting firms on campus or banks or anything like that. Um, so I, through the interview process and as I studied for these interviews, I really fell in love with consulting and with the – I'm a big planner, so I love the fact that there was like a ladder and like you did two years business analyst, you did your MBA, then associate, then, you know, associate partner, then partner, and – I, I loved having to never think about that again and to have a really clear path. Um, and I wanted to learn about different things. Like I had no exposure to business whatsoever, so I thought it was a great way to accelerate my career. It's interesting. You talk about having a very clear path, and yet here you are as an entrepreneur that's like probably walking through the swamp with your eyes closed at any given moment. Yes. Is it, is it hard for you to basically balance those two sides? It's very hard, yeah. I'm probably the most like risk-averse entrepreneur in the world. R- really? Yeah. Why Even, do you, why do you yeah. think it, so? It just it makes me really uncomfortable to not know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, I always plan ahead. So it's hard for me to not know like what lies in the future. But I've learned to embrace everything that's happened. And every time we succeed, um, I realize it's because we kept an open mind. And it's been a learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to this when we start talking about how you choose a business partner and all this. But yeah. you've mentioned Brazil a couple yeah. times. What what happened there? How, how did that kind of come into play? I don't know. I, I, I'm I fluent in Spanish and I'm fluent in English. And I was just like, I want to learn Portuguese. My options are Brazil or Portugal. And um, I just had a curiosity. And I wanted to travel by myself because I had never done that before. So I called my dad and I was like, hey, I have this amazing offer to go to McKinsey. But I want to take six months off, and they're allowing me to do that. This is, like, the perfect opportunity to do something completely crazy. And so I was like, I'm moving to Brazil. And he was really upset because it's funny because in Colombia, a lot of people see externally Colombia as being this really dangerous place. But he saw Brazil as being this very dangerous place, and he didn't think it was safe. And I was like, that's so contradicting, though. Mm -hmm. It's so true. But then when did you start to realize that McKinsey or consulting in general was not it was not what you wanted to do long term. Yeah, so when I was in Brazil, I happened to stumble upon an opportunity that ended up kind of changing my life in a way. Um, so this this woman who had just graduated from her MBA and she had worked at McKinsey, she reached out. I forget how we got in contact, but she had a connection to an accelerator mm. program in Brazil. And at the time, the Brazilian economy was booming and it was really exciting and startups were becoming a thing. So the accelerator was called 21212. So 21 is the area code of um, Rio and then 212 is the area code of New York. So they were connecting New York angels to startup opportunities in Brazil. And I started working at this accelerator for those six months. So initially I said, I'm just going to travel and like lay at the beach, but I ended up working. And I fell in love with my experience there and working with all of these startups. And I knew that this was something that I had always wanted. But I had this offer and I knew going to McKinsey was going to be good for my career. So I ended up 
going back. I ended up going there. I doubted whether to go back and just to stay in Brazil and, and keep doing what I was doing there. Um, but ultimately, I decided to, to go back, and I really, really enjoyed McKinsey, I would say, for the first year. And I was traveling a lot and learning about a lot of different things, but then it became clear that that wasn't really my passion, and it took me a year and a half longer to just uh, to, to actually leave. It's really interesting as you tell that story, right? I imagine, you know, you come to this fork in the road. On the right is a very sure thing. It's McKinsey. It's well-known all over the world. There's a very clear path to success and advancement. And on the left is entrepreneurship and starting another company, right, which is, you know, completely unknown, but also very exciting and intriguing. So you chose the the, the safer option in the first, but then ultimately ended up in the second. Can you talk about that transition, what happened in between, and how you ultimately ended up as an entrepreneur? Yeah. So I think for me, like, the more people tell me one thing and they tell it to me over and over again, the less I want to do it and I want to do something different. So when I was at McKinsey, it felt like I was following the crowd and everybody was applying to MBA programs and everybody, you know... Actually, like most of the people I talked to didn't even like working there, but they were going back because because they're of all of the benefits that that uh, job brings. But I just wasn't feeling it. I wasn't I wasn't feeling like applying to MBAs didn't feel genuine at the time because mm-hmm. I knew that I didn't want to go back into consulting. I, I wasn't happy there, so I wanted to try something new, and I wanted to work for the same type of startups that I was working with in Brazil because that's when I knew that I felt happy and mm-hmm. I enjoyed what I was doing. So, uh, so yeah, so quitting was hard because, as you mentioned, even coming into Stern and the first thing everybody says is, I want to go and work for this company, um, there was that th- there was that in the, back, in the back of my mind of wondering, you know, am I doing the right thing? But... I knew I needed to, like, explore other things. When people at Stern glamorize consulting, n- now that you've been at one of the top firms have done it, what do you wish they knew? I can't s- – I-, I think I would have, even knowing what I know today, I would have still done it coming out of college. It's It's difficult because it does bring – it does open a lot of doors. Um, and – it, you know, it, it it will open a lot of doors for your future. So I think that if someone has this opportunity, I would understand why they would take it. But I think I think people will come to their own realization of what consulting is on mm-hmm. their on their terms. Well, you did get to see a lot of different businesses. You get to see a lot of yeah. business models. So I think right. that probably helped in some way. Exactly. As you kind of crystallize this idea of what it is, you know, what, what kind of business I want to start. So mm-hmm. uh, I think I think that's probably a fair. Uh, a fair point, but you get here. Um, I think you you stopped at uh, a startup called uh, Converse Social. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Can yes. you talk about that experience after McKinsey before business school? Yeah. So Converse Social was totally random in terms of what I had, you know, had a previous exposure to. Mm-hmm. So it was a B two B software platform for enterprises to help them scale customer service over social media channels. Mm-hmm. So customer service, B2B, enterprise, what? Like nothing to do with me. Um, I loved that they were doing something new around social media and how a lot of people are now approaching companies on social media channels instead of the call center. Mm-hmm. 
So I did feel like that what they were doing was innovative, and I started out in a sales job, which I was like, I never thought I'd be a salesperson because I'm an introvert. So I was like, what am I doing in sales? But I also wanted to see what that was like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I moved around a lot to different positions. I started in sales, quickly got a little bit bored of it, and switched to a marketing role, which I liked a lot more. But after a year of being there is when I started conceptualizing Pepper as a company. Mm-hmm. And it took us another year to launch Kickstarter. Who's us? Uh, so my co-founder, Jacqueline, she was also working at Converse Social. Mm-hmm. So we are working there together. And so we started the company together. What made you want to start a company with her, though? So when you talk, when you talk about picking a partner, starting this company, how did you know that she shared the same vision that you do? I didn't. I, I, I really didn't. We were chatting on Slack a lot, and she was going to these competitions for, like, where you pitch an idea and you don't know anyone there and you're working with a team, and then if you win, you know, it kind of encourages you to get started. So she had pitched an idea for another kind of, like, B2B thing. And when she was telling me about it, I got so excited. And I was like, oh, I want to I do that too. Uh, but I was like, but I don't want to build, like, a B2B company like I wanted I wanted like a consumer product something Mm -hmm. I can relate to and we just started talking about uh, our interests in like entrepreneurship to be entrepreneurs one day and we started talking about different ideas but we hadn't yet agreed that we were going to do anything together I had worked with her I mean I knew she was a total badass and I wanted to work with her uh, but we didn't really plan it and then one day she slacked me and she's like, I have the perfect idea. I want to build, I want to design the perfect bra for me. And I was like, oh, I want to design the perfect bra for me too. And she was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I want to design the perfect bra for small chested women because it, my bras don't fit. And I was like, and then we started talking about why our bras don't fit to each other. But we realized we came from very different sizing spectrums and we had different pain points. And so... It was after that I started doing some research into the market and realized, hey, there are these companies that are talking about, you know, body positivity and body acceptance and are creating kind of like they're going after kind of like a niche audience for the plus size side of the sizing spectrum. And no one was doing it for small. So I thought from a brand perspective, there was definitely an opportunity. And that's when we got started. And I was like, hey, if you're serious about this idea, I'm serious about it, too. Like, let's 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 start working on it. And that's how we got started. That's incredible. And I want to come back to the point earlier that you you made about yourself, that you're a risk-averse entrepreneur. When you look at your partner, is she she the same way? Is she different? No, she's she's all about risk. She's all about risk. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't think twice about making a decision. She just makes a decision. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait. Let's think this through. Uh, So, for example, we started doing a sample because we needed a sample. We needed our MVP to launch Kickstarter. Can you tell us what an MVP is? A minimum viable product. So for apparel or e-commerce companies, that means like you need a physical product that you can touch and feel and fit on people and see what their reactions are. And you need a, a brand name and you need like a really scrappy landing page. Like You need the minimal possible thing so that people know that you are a company. Thank you, Professor Mar- <laughs> When you talk about, though, being risk-averse, 
And your co-founder being, you know, very, I don't know what the opposite is, like very excited and um, encouraged by risk. What makes you afraid, though? Like, what is it about, you know, being an entrepreneur that makes you actually really afraid to do it? Um, I wouldn't say that I'm risk averse because I'm afraid. I would say I'm risk averse because I like to plan Mm -hmm. and I like to think of, I, I like to exhaust every possible option before making a decision. Whereas for her... Um, she's more comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, so after we did our sample with, we started doing a sample with a Colombian factory, and we did like four iterations. And we don't like to tell this to our customers, but the product was like not there at all. And it wasn't fitting Jacqueline right. It just wasn't there. And she was like, we're launching Kickstarter. And I was like, no, we're not. And she was like, yeah, we are. We're launching it now. And I was like, no, 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 no. The product has to be perfect before we launch it. Because if it's not and we get a bunch of orders, then we have to go to the manufacturer and it's going to delay timelines and it's going to blah, blah, blah. That was like my... Consulting brain kicking in. Yeah, definitely. And she was like, no, you don't understand. We're launching it. And so she pushed me to launch it. And I think that combination... Like, we complement each other very well. I think we were at a point where it was a good idea to launch it, but there were pros and cons. Like, if we had waited, Mm -hmm. we probably would have been able to deliver it faster to our customers. But I'm glad, in a way, that we didn't wait until it was perfect because we were able to really test the market and see if the demand was there. So how did you come up with Pepper as a name? Yeah, we were both really tired of shopping at companies with names like Victoria's Secret and Adore Me and Third Love, and it's all about love and hearts. And we were like, wait, women are about so much more than that. And we wanted a brand name that reflected the women's shopping experience, not who she is trying to show her lingerie to. Um, so with that in mind, we started talking about a bunch of different names, and Jacqueline was sort of the filter, so she was like, yes, no, yes, no. And we were at a company offsite for Conversocial, and we were so exhausted because we had been working on Pepper, like, after hours and on weekends and whatever. So we were sitting down, and I was putting sugar in my coffee, and I was like, oh, what about sugar? Like, that's kind of, like, cute. And mm-hmm. she was like, no, like, that's the same thing that other companies are doing. It's, like, the stereotypical feminine thing. Um, mm-hmm. So I looked at the op- I looked at the table, and I was just like, what about Pepper? And I was, like, laughing. And she was like, no, that's it. And I was like, no. And she was like, that's it. Like, Pepper is what it is. And then we thought about it more, and Pepper is an ingredient that has a lot of flavor. It has, like, a kick to it, but it's not overly spicy, so mm-hmm. it's not, mm-hmm. you know, overly um, sexualized in that sense. And Pepper had a really nice alliteration with petite, so we were like, okay, and it's, like, punchy and memorable, easy to say. Mm-hmm. So it was it was that. She was like, that's it. And I was like, let me keep coming up with things. She's like, no, that's it. Yeah, it's, like, familiar and new at the same time. Yeah, it's very cute. Yeah. I want to go back to your earlier point, though, about these behemoths in the industry, like Victoria's Secret. And there was a stat that you have in one of your decks that I was reading online that 71% of women say their bras from Victoria's Secret don't actually fit. And I want to talk about Victoria's Secret setting the precedent and the tone in the industry, but also the fact that Pepper is very body positive. And why is that important for you guys to include in your messaging and your company values? Yeah. So if you think about the shopping experience of a small-chested woman, let's say. So Jacqueline, for example, she wears a 32A. So she walks into a company like Victoria's Secret. The first thing they do is that they shove a push-up bra in her face. And they tell her that she literally needs to look bigger. Mm. And if she just wants to look like herself, maybe she'll try on another style in 32A. 
and she gets so many fit issues with it. So the most prevalent that she gets is a gap that is created between the cup and her skin. So having that space there literally makes her feel like she's less than the rest of the women. Um, so we wanted to create a brand that, A, delivered products that fit so that when you try it on, you don't feel like you have to alter your body or look like something different than who you really are. Mm-hmm. And then second, to really eliminate these stereotypes where bigger is the norm, where bigger is sexy. Mm-hmm. So for women like her, she grew up hearing insults like, you know, you're flat as a pancake or mosquito bites, or she's consistently hearing in the media how women are too flat or they're not big enough. Um, so we were tired of that, and we thought that this message was really similar to maybe things that women in the plus size category here, mm-hmm. but no one was really speaking about it from the perspective of small. And so for us, it was important to create that first brand where women are, you know, where we're building a community of women who just want to look like themselves and they want, and, and they want to feel confident in their bodies. Did you see any pushback from either Colombian friends or family, because on one hand, you have a body-positive company. On the other hand, you go to Colombia, and you have Sofia Vergara and (laughs) plastic surgery and all these really beautiful women who are trying to attain basically an unachievable standard of beauty that's sort of culturally grown. Yeah, which is why I think it's even more important for a brand to exist in Colombia. So some of my friends have... It's sort of become a tradition to get breast implants when you're 16 years old. 16? Yeah, 16. So it's like 16, you ask your parents for one, and it's just, it's become tradition. Um, So I think it's extremely important to have brands that speak to those issues and deliver products that are for these women. So a lot of bra companies in Colombia don't even carry these smaller sizes. So women end up wearing a bigger size, even though it's the wrong size, because the industry is literally telling you to do that. One of the things that that strikes me about this story is that the idea for the product came from a very personal experience, and it is kind of blossomed into what it is today through the recognition that many other women also have that same problem. And I think that's kind of validated through the Kickstarter program that you guys have. So why don't you give us the story behind that, especially the pact that you made with your co-founder? So we launched Kickstarter on a morning at like 6 a.m. Jacqueline and I woke up before we had to go to Converse Social and we pressed publish on the Kickstarter campaign. And when we did, we realized that we had made a mistake on the campaign and it was supposed to, there was like a, a magic number. Like it, so people told us, you should make the campaign last for 30 days because that's short enough for people to feel the urgency, but not long enough where they'll just drag the, they'll just delay the decision to purchase. And when we press publish, we realized that the campaign was only going to be live for 13 days. So I was freaking out and I texted Jacqueline and I was like, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make the goal. So the initial goal was to raise $10,000 to meet the minimum production requirements in Colombia with mm-hmm. the factory we were working with. And she was like, it's going to be okay. We're, we're going to make it. Don't worry. Like, we have a plan. Um, so we went to work, and we got our first – we got featured on a couple of press articles, and it was crazy to kind of see your name on the Internet. I was like, oh, I would never experienced that before. 
by the time I left Converse Social around five, I left early that day, we had fully funded the campaign. So it had been, I think, 10 hours and we had reached the goal. And so Jacqueline was like, okay, if oh we, my God. If we, crazy. If we double the goal, I'm going to quit. And I was like, well, I'm not, but <laughs> let's, let's, get, let's get to there and see what happens. And then after the 13-day campaign, we had 4X of the goal. Um, so we raised over, we raised about $47,000. And I think at that point, we had 1,000 women who had bought the bra. And then... We continue to raise money afterwards on our website through pre-orders, so we actually doubled that Kickstarter goal. In the end, we had like $100,000 worth of pre-orders, so 2,000 units, and my co-founder quit. Jacqueline quit. I also quit because I had gotten accepted. Quit her existing job, just to be clear. We both quit. We both quit Converse Social. Got it, got it. We both quit Converse Social post-Kickstarter. I had gotten accepted to Stern, so I thought it would be the perfect opportunity to grow the startup while I was in school and to build more connections in New York and fully leverage like the mm-hmm. entrepreneurial vibe that's going on in New York and to make Pepper a success while I was here. I mean, what's going through your head after you exceed the goal in 10 hours and then quadruple it over the course and then continue beyond that? Like you yeah. said, you, you said you saw 13 days and said, no way. I was actually terrified. I was really, really nervous because we didn't, the product wasn't there. So I was very excited, but that was like my risk aversion, kind of mm-hmm. like playing in like, I was like, okay, but but let's think about now all of the things that we have to do in order to be able to successfully deliver this product. So for me, Kickstarter was a huge marketing success, and my co-founder is really good with marketing. I'm more operations. So for me, I was like, my challenge now is to get a perfect product in the hand of customers. 2,000 of them. 2,000 of them (laughs) while not having like a perfect design yet. Mm -hmm. So I immediately flew to Columbia and started working with the manufacturers to be able to meet meet the deadline we had set for ourselves. So while all this is going on with the Kickstarter and the press and all this marketing, you're also having this conversation with yourself about an MBA. I'm curious about you said previously that you weren't ready for it and it didn't feel very genuine applying to mm-hmm. school. I'm curious, what changed for you while this like very exciting chapter of your life is just like, you know getting off the ground? Yeah, so after a year at Converse Social, I started feeling a little bit bored. Um, I had, you know, I'd done consulting and that was kind of like the big corporation experience. I had done the startup experience, but I was like, it's still not there. Like, I'm still not 100% where I want to be. So I started exploring different MBA programs as I was starting Pepper. So I was applying to MBAs. I was working on Pepper. I was working at Converse Social. Um, I was just kind of like exploring things. And then when I got accepted, um, I thought it would be a good time to having to maybe like delay that decision as to whether I was going to do Pepper full time or not. Mm -hmm. There were still so many things that we had to figure out. Um, So I thought that the two-year gap would give me enough time to really build it out into what I envisioned it to be so that post-MBA I could work on it full-time. Again, there were a lot of people that I met who were like, you're not going to be able to do this. You shouldn't do this. It's not a good idea. But I was like, I'm going to do it. I know I can do it. I'll be really good at balancing everything. It'll be fine. And so I went with it. And it was not fine. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Okay, cool. So you get into Stern, mm-hmm. you show up here in New York. What is your first impression? What were your expectations for coming to business school here? Expectations included walking into a campus and walking into these rooms where everyone was working on a business and everyone was writing on the whiteboard like different ideas and you would just kind of jump in and describe what you were working on and help other teams and teams would help you. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't any of that, you know, when I joined. I think I've gotten a lot out of it that I didn't expect it, but I, what, I, what I expected to get out of it, I didn't get out of it. So mm-hmm. it was a surprise. Um, the amount of distractions, workload, et cetera, are things that I definitely underestimated. It's funny that you say that because it reminds me of being in Scott Galloway's brand strategy class. And I remember one day in class he said, if you were not risk averse, you wouldn't be here. And if you wanted to start your company, you already would have. Now, I don't know if he was saying that from a place of encouraging us like to prove him wrong and to start these incredible companies. But I do think the MBA experience is so taxing on so many different parts of your life. I know that Justin and myself and other other classmates always admire that we see you around campus and you're involved and you are always in a good mood because you have a lot going on and like real customers out there who are buying your product. I love being an entrepreneur in New York while doing my MBA because you get access to so many things. So through organizations like Insight, for example, where we do treks to different VC offices, like all of these things, you're meeting so many people that are important to your company and whether they want to meet with you or not, you're meeting with them anyway and you're getting the feedback and you're getting and you're building those connections, which has been extremely valuable. So I would say the MBA has definitely allowed me to really broaden my network here in New York, which I think is crucial for an entrepreneur here. So before I joined Stern, I could count the number of people I knew with my hands. Mm-hmm. And now you get access to like so many people that, for I have friends who have helped me on like, you know, fi- you have helped me with uh, my f- financial models for Pepper, just being able to leverage different skill sets and being the spotlight because you're the only one working on a startup. So you're kind of like guilt tripping them and you're like, you have to help me. (laughs) I am the only one here. But it's also tough. Um, A lot of my friends were so consumed in the recruiting process and they were, you know, sharing things with each other. Um, Things that I just felt very out of the loop in Mm -hmm. and I just couldn't connect with them in that sense because I was so over that phase of my life. Mm that I wish that there had been other people starting things so that, you know, we could bounce ideas off of each other and really provide that, like, support system that Mm -hmm. I sometimes am in need of. But it's hard when all of your classmates are pursuing different career paths. Yeah, there's definitely this idea of bonding through shared experience, and recruiting is a big one here at Stern, particularly in your first year. Uh, And that's just very different, you know, from, from the experience that you were having. But I'd also say that most people haven't worked with the Leslie E-Lab or, or, or the Stern Venture Fellowship. So can you talk about what that experience is like? Because I think that'll be kind of new for a lot of people here. Yeah. Um, NYU actually has a lot of entrepreneurial resources that are underused, which is great for me in a lot of senses. But the when I was in launch and I was sitting down and Frank, from who heads the Leslie Lab, went up there and described what they do. 
I grabbed my phone and I emailed him as he was speaking because uh, I knew that was the first person I, you know, that's, mm-hmm. I wanted to fully take advantage throughout my whole two years and I wanted to introduce myself to all these people like from day one. So I've worked very closely with them um, throughout my time here. For our listeners, do you mind just describing what the, the Leslie E. Lab is? is? Yeah. Yeah. So the e- Leslie E. Lab is an entrepreneurial um center in NYU as a whole and they have like a co-working space so you can go there and meet other people who are working on their startups and they have a lot of programming throughout the year so they bring in experts in you know Facebook ads for example Um, so they allow you to learn through all of these workshops and then for the summer they have something called the Uh, Well, they have a couple things, but they will basically pay you a stipend so that you can work on your entrepreneurial, you know, venture. And they guide you through the entire process of customer discovery. And they really just support you. They they pair you up with a mentor. Um, So that happens over the summer. I, I've been to the, the eLab a couple times, and I know there's a big board that says seeking, and then you can post things that you need up yeah. there, and then able to provide. You can post things that, that, <laughs> that you can do there. And it strikes me as you were talking, you know, we were describing it, this is almost like what you expected Stern to be, what you expected the business school to be, but you found that outside in the water, the wider NYU community which I think could be a good lesson for a lot of business school students here, right? It tends to be very inward looking at Stern, but we're a part of a much bigger organization. Yeah, the Stern undergrads are also really entrepreneurial. And there are, you're right, there are a lot of startups in NYU as a whole, because NYU is huge. So even if you don't find those things in the MBA program, you'll be able to find it outside in the broader university network. What did you do over the summer? Because we talked about everyone recruiting for different things, but um, would love to hear about how you spent your summer and what sort of growth you've seen um, by probably having more time to work on Pepper each day. Yeah, it was great. I were I got the Stern Venture Fellowship, which is a similar program um, than the one the Leslie Lab runs for the summer, um, but a little bit more catered to the MBA and Stern specifically. And it was great. I had a lot of flexibility to work on my venture, which I needed, and to not, you know, be distracted by anything. And then it also included a trip to San Francisco where we got to meet a lot of the connections from the investor who funded this program. And um, he is now an investor in Pepper, which is great. And congratulations. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you. And uh, it was it was great. It was a lot of we got a lot of support, but we also got a lot of flexibility, which is what I wanted. So you have all these resources from Stern. What have you been able to turn them into with Pepper? Were you able to to get these these products into the customer's hands? So after we launched Kickstarter, um, Jacqueline and I worked really hard, I would say, independently to get the product in the hands of the customers. Uh, What Stern has been able to provide is uh, so many connections that we've been able to use to get advice on how to continue to grow, how to invest the money that we have into, you know, marketing efforts, um, how to better track things, and really just holding us accountable to different milestones. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say the connections have been extremely valuable and everybody here has been so nice 
to think of people that I should connect with, and that has made a huge difference. And did you ship product? Oh, yes. We shipped product uh, in April. We got the full manufacturing order sent to our warehouse, and my co-founder, Jacqueline, I mean, she's not only really good at marketing, she's also really good at packing boxes. <laughs> she did Multi-talented. it so fast. Every day she'd be like, hi, I packed like 800 boxes. And I was like, who are you? What? Like a robot. Um, so we packed every box ourselves and shipped it off to the our customers. And mm-hmm. for the past months, we've been growing every month just through, you know, organic growth. And now we are starting to invest more in paid acquisition uh, for marketing. More of a story than a question, but it was exciting for me as someone who's like rooting for you and rooting for Pepper. I went to my friend's apartment and I walked in and there was a Pepper box there. And she's so excited that she got her first order um, and is such a great supporter of you. So it's really cool to see your dreams and your hard work also come to fruition. And the, Mm -hmm. the packaging was really great. I gotta say, I was very impressed. Thank you. So how does it feel looking back over the last, you know, 18 months? You know, it's what what kind of struck me in your story is that you did, you know, McKinsey for a year, two years, and then it kind of got bored. And then you did something else for a year and kind of got bored. You're now, you know, a year and a half into business school. How are you feeling? And and when you look back on the success of Pepper thus far, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's funny you say that because my co-founder was like, how will you know to not keep working on Pepper and I was like when I get bored when I when I start feeling bored I, I will not continue to work on it because it means I'm not learning anything anymore mm-hmm. um, good advice by the way I'm not yeah, bored definitely. at all I wish I was bored um, it's been extremely overwhelming um, I can't believe you know every day there there are so many things on my agenda it like scares me but I'm getting through it. I mean, time really just flies. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I don't have regrets about not doing more like social stuff. I try my best, but there's only so much I can I can do physically do. Um, but it's been it's been great. But I still have to get through the next. Eight months. I feel like you're selling months. yourself short a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Like, oh. You've built this company that is now shipping things. It's a real <laughs> it's a real oh, okay. company. Like <laughs> that's gotta feel good. No, I mean, yes. Okay. Think so. about like all like uh, all the things that like your parents and like uh, your grandparents and like that whole thing, like your family supporting you and all your friends and, and now you've actually done this, right? Now you can put it on the table and be like, I built this. Yeah, I'm 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 bad at doing that. At, at feeling like I am so good, you know. But I'm getting my first paycheck tomorrow. Wow! So congratulations. Pepper, Drinks yes. on Leah. So <laughs> that is an amazing feeling to be able to build something and then to like support yourself with it. It's like a strange feeling, like getting that first paycheck. So we've been paying my co-founder for a couple months, and she was just explaining how she f- how she feels. And so we were I, I, we were on the phone, and I was in such a bad mood because we had to deal with so many things to be able to get this whole thing set up on Gusto and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, wait, aren't you excited? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get paid, like, next month, which is an amazing, amazing feeling. I hope you'll take a picture of that check <laughs> before you deposit it. It's I a hope small you take check, a but yeah. <laughs> So for those of our listeners who are really inspired by you, as I'm sure they will be, what advice do you have? What should they do with their next big idea and how should they make it a reality? Yeah, I mean, for people who are already entrepreneurs, I would say I don't have advice because they're already entrepreneurs and everything is so different that they are probably more of an expert at what they're doing than 
I am. So I would say that for people who have an idea and are doing their MBA or thinking about doing the MBA, um, what really surprised me was the how long it took to take something from like the idea stage all the way to having that product be in the customer's hands. I never expected that it would take so long when I had the when we had the idea of Pepper I called my dad and I was like I'm quitting and he was like don't do it yet and I think that was really smart um, because it took us a year and like eight months which is insane um, but guess what else lasts two years right your mm-hmm. MBA so I would say if you have an idea and you want to start working on it do it from do it from day one um, and by the time you graduate, you may have like, you may have like a, a company, which is pretty amazing. What advice, or I guess, what would you say to uh, your fellow classmates um, who aren't entrepreneurs and who are not pursuing that, in ways that they can be more inclusive and more supportive of people, kind of walking the entrepreneurship path, which is very unique, I think, in these halls and. And something that kind of flies under the radar a little bit. So how, how can we as non-entrepreneurs be more supportive? You can give me free help. <laughs> Labor. You can do all my financial <laughs> Wait, statements. hold on. I, <laughs> can I be your intern? I mean, are you accepting interns? I would love to. <laughs> I mean, it's tough. I think the school as a whole needs to do a better job to bring in more entrepreneurs so mm-hmm. that people like who aren't pursuing it don't have to feel like they have to, you know, help me. Like, I, I should have a support system of my own. Mm-hmm from uh, people who are doing the exact same thing that I'm doing, not designing bras, but starting a company. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that in future classes that is taken, you know, they they take that into account. Awesome. Well, Leah, thank you so much for being here. We wish you all the success with your company. Uh, We will be rooting for you and supporting you in any way that we can. Uh, If we want to find out more about Pepper, uh, where should we look? You can go to wearpepper.com, W-E-A-R-P-E-P-P-E-R.com, and follow us on Instagram, wearpepper as well. And Facebook and Twitter. And Facebook and Twitter. All the things. All the things. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you. Thank you.